But uh, one of the things that I remember distinctly about IRC is countless people lurking in channels, ostensibly to help people with questions, and their only job was to correct other people, where they felt like that wasn't correct enough. Actually, you need to do this, or actually, almost always, well, actually, or here's the thing. You know, there's, you can just always tell, you can hear it coming, even though it's text. You can just, oh no. The eye roll starts, everyone in the channels. That guy, again, is speaking up. There's like this demand, we must be correct and accurate, and woe be unto you if both of you, if you and him, both think you're being the most accurate possible, but you disagree. That means the world is, one world is colliding with another, and there's about to be a catfight of epic proportions. So Jeff, how would you like to get into a topic that might piss some people off? Oh, do we have to? Okay. I mean, we can, or we can't. We can avoid it. Well, but if the people I, want it, then we should do it. Well, see, I think the people might not want it, oh. which could be a reason to do it. I, that's logic of a sort, I suppose that can, let's just do it. I don't want to think about it too okay. hard. That's how much we appreciate our listeners. We're going to we're going to intentionally go into a topic that might piss off some of them. Well, you know, but that's OK, because they can always then send in an email or reach out to us and let us know that we piss them off. And then they can tell us how we're idiots and they disagree with us, mm -hmm. which is fine, because that's what we like. We like uh, feedback. Absolutely. Even if it's bad feedback, but it's feedback. Well, yeah, it's feedback. Feedback is good. Even mm -hmm. if it's bad. So anyway, um, there's been something that's been rolling around in my head for a while, and I know I brought it up to you once before. And I figured, let's just go ahead and do it live and just see where it goes. And that is, I have noticed that people, you know, in this field, in the technology field, seem to be extraordinarily arrogant about a lot of things. Now, <laughs> I know that that can go many different directions. So I want to, I want to clarify okay. the arrogance that I'm talking about. All right. And that is... Not just the I'm the best in the world. That, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is how I've noticed that people in tech seem to view things that they do as a hobby and overestimate their skill in them. Now, mm. part of me wonders if it isn't Dunning-Kruger, but I don't think it is because generally we know how to research. So we actually know how to look into something and find out what's mm -hmm. there. So I don't think it's that we don't understand the depth. I think it's that we somehow believe generally that we're better at something than we actually are. And, and I've noticed this seems to most of the time result in, or let me rephrase that. I think, see, most of the time that this is when technical people get involved into things that are typically in the creative space. Ah, yes, um, yes. The two that come to mind that I have experienced more times than I wish I would have is <laughs> people getting involved in photography and people getting involved in music or musical stuff. Now, to be clear, I am not saying you cannot be a professional in two fields at once. That would be stupid of me to say because, because that's what I you do are. that. That's right? it, literally. Like, I make money doing both technology stuff and also doing photography. I have done that for many, many years. My dad was a photographer. My brother is a photographer. His wife is a photographer. So, like, I've been surrounded by it. I've done it for a Lineage. very long time. No kidding. Yeah. Um, but it is a part-time gig for me. Mm. Um, I mean, if I could make, you know, 150K off of doing that, I would probably quit technology and do that because that would be great. And I yeah. love that. Yeah. However, it is something that I do part-time. Part-time professional. But I know very well that there are tons of photographers that put me to absolute shame. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that somebody can't be a dual professional, and I'm not saying that somebody can't be very skilled in another thing that they do. What I'm specifically talking about is the people that, for instance, are a programmer or a hardware guy or whatever, think, oh, photography's fun. I like Instagram. So they go buy an expensive camera because they have the money. Mm -hmm. And then they go join a photography group that they or club that they find online. And then instantly think that they're a professional. Now, 
I know that sounds really, really specific, and you might be thinking, that seems really, really specific. Suspiciously specific, JT. And it is very, very specific, because this is something I've actually run into with the photography club that I run oh, in Maryland. Oh, like local to you. Like, you experienced yes. this. Exactly. Okay. This is first-hand experience and frustration. Okay. We have, our group is, there are professionals that are in the group, and I don't, you know, there's me doing it part-time, but there's other people that, like, photography is their full-time career. Mm -hmm. They also like doing it and just having fun with other people taking photographs. Like, we do trips. So we'll go on a trip, usually once a year, somewhere on the East Coast, and either, you know, like a, a national park, and we'll all camp out together, and then we'll do day hikes or day trips or whatever and do photographs together. So it's more of a community thing. That sounds like a lot of fun. And... We have, we have people that are nurses. We have people who are, one of the guys is literally a rocket scientist. <laughs> um, he's actually retired now. Does he make he that old a, joke a lot? Like, no, this no, ain't rocket doesn't. science, I have, and I would I have know. To make it, yeah, I have to make it for him all the time because oh. he won't. Oh, um, well, that's good but, on you. Yeah, so, yeah, he worked for Thiokol, which then became ATK. Like, this dude spent his career working literally on rocket engines. Mm -hmm. But he loves photography because he thinks it's fun. It's his hobby. Mm -hmm. But see, that's the thing. He thinks it's fun. It's something he enjoys. He and his wife go on photo trips around the world because they enjoy it. Mm -hmm. This is not... I'm going to just say his name because I'll probably never listen to this episode. Jim, at no point, is like, I'm a professional photographer. That narrows it down. I know everything. There's right, only yeah, like 400,000 gyms in <laughs> right. the United States alone. So, like, Jim has never come off with an attitude. And like, this guy has like a PhD. I think he's actually got two maybe PhDs. Like Whoa. the dude is brilliant. Whoa. Like absolutely utterly brilliant. So side note, why do you why, after you get the first, why do you say that's not enough? I'm going to get a second. I, wow. Cuz that's just You don't yeah. ever want to leave school. Anyway, sorry, I didn't That's, that's how baller you are. Okay. So I would not use that term, is, but okay. He uh he does it because he likes it. It's okay. it's enjoyment for him. At no point has Jim ever acted like he knows everything. Mm -hmm. Like there's times when he'll come up to me or other people and be like, hey, what do you think I should do in this situation? Like, how could I have shot this differently to get better light or, or whatever? And another friend of mine, Gail, she's a nurse. She works in the ER. Photography is her relaxation, her fun, her thing, you know, something that she enjoys. Again, at no point has she ever come off like she's the best mm -hmm. or that she knows everything. And when we do go on trips, we then usually always have follow-up meetings where we get together and we show each other the photos that we took what we were thinking about when we took them, you know, what we were trying to capture, if other people had feedback about what they thought when they first saw the image, so then we could take that and go, okay, well, maybe if I had framed it a little differently, then what you said would have been less clear and you'd have seen more of what my vision was for the photograph, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. However, we have on multiple occasions had someone who has joined and they come to the first thing, first meeting, and instantly they're the critic and they're telling everybody how they can do things better. Oh, those guys are, gals are great. Instantly it's, well, you know, mm. on this shot, you, you should have used a, a, a larger aperture because, and it's like, okay, first off, do you know what Jim was doing and why he photographed that photo the way he did? He didn't want a shallow depth of field. He was looking for a larger depth of field, which is why he used a smaller aperture. Maybe there was a reason why he did that. And he doesn't need you to educate him as to why he should have done something different out of the gate like mm -hmm. ask first find out if there was a reason and then if that reason is just oh well you know i don't know i just went with one then you can offer a creative suggestion well you know if you'd have maybe shot with a shallower depth of field you'd have maybe gotten a little more background separation which would allow you know the, the subject to stand out however there may have been a reason why he didn't it could have been that you know he's done safaris before well he may have had the smaller aperture to get a larger depth of field because it would be easier to snap focus mm -hmm. if you wanted to capture something. The point is, I've seen this time and time again where a tech person will come in and act like they're the professional and they know everything and they have to educate everyone else. And I see this in the music side too. Now, I don't do music, but I have friends who do. Mm -hmm. And I see the same thing in interaction in groups where, again, somebody will come in, they'll start talking, and I'll just see the eye start to roll. And I don't understand why this is the case, because this doesn't seem to be something I see in other fields. Like, for instance, using Gail, for example, I don't see many nurses going into a different field that they have a hobby on and then instantly thinking they're professional. Like, 
A nurse doesn't like, uh-huh. oh, I'm a professional photographer on the side. Or a nurse doesn't go, you know what? You know what I, uh, I like to do in my spare time is uh, is do an auto mechanic. You know, I just have a shop in my garage. I uh, bring cars in, jack them up, do, uh, do some auto repair for my neighbors, make some extra money on the side. Not really. Hmm. They may enjoy working on cars, but they don't see themselves as the professional mechanic. I don't see photographers, you know, finishing their day as a photographer, then going home and be like, oh, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a new compiler because, because uh, yeah, because that'd be fun. Like, no, they might like computers. They might even be a programmer, but yet they're not going to act like they are the creme de la creme, that they're the best out there and they know the ways that all people should be doing, you know, that field. I just, I don't see, to, to extend the analogy even further, I don't see auto mechanics who work on cars the whole day going home at the end of the night and go, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to practice some medicine and, uh, in the, on the side. Cause, uh, you know, I like doing that and, uh, just going to do a little bit of nursing here for, uh, cause you know, cause you know, I know how to do nursing. No, you don't see okay, that. Okay. So nursing, um, that's not something legally you're supposed to practice. I think you can't, okay. You can't front as a nurse if you're not a uh, registered nurse is my understanding. You can't call yourself nurse something. Even in an unofficial capacity. Um, I actually don't. I think you might be able to. Oh, really? I don't know if there's a law okay. against it. Well, now, you, I know you I know definitely you can't. Pre- you can't call yourself doctor. doctor. You can't. Exactly. Right. I thought nurse had the same protection. No. Hmm. Okay. I don't believe look, so. I mean, maybe that. it might be a state by state thing. Oh, could be. Could be. But, yeah. So, but you're right. I, I don't think uh, people were going to step in and, and, oh, I, you know, I'm an amateur gynecologist or something, you know, or, you know, I do this on the side. I don't think people are going to do that. I just, I was thinking of uh, Knocked Out, that movie from like 2006. And yeah. granted, amateur gynecology is only a hobby of mine, but right. I think there, and he just goes on and, and views all this knowledge out. And it's kind of funny the way he delivers it. But I, don't, mm-hmm. I, I think that that's actually, it would make a good example or a good exploration because it is so ludicrous that I don't think I see it. Right. But, like the auto mechanic is not going to happen to be somewhere and then be like, oh, I, I just, you know, their their friend is in the hospital and they mm-hmm. go to visit him in the ER. And then they, you know, they poke their head around the the, the partition and go, uh, Doc, have have you decided to uh check the potassium levels Let me see on, his uh, chart. on that patient? Right. Like, no, they don't do that. They're not gonna go to a professional and then act like they know as much as or more than the professional in that field. Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. Of course he had a long time to learn all that stuff. So he actually, though not being a doctor licensed, he probably had a point in time to learn a lot of that. So that's now, granted, there are obviously outliers that happen. So, yes. like, there is probably one auto mechanic out there who's tried that. However, that's not my point. Yes. The point is there seem to be a higher frequency of this situation in people that work in technology. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm kind of curious as to why that is. Hmm. Do you have any ideas? I have a couple. Um, it'll take a little while to get to... Get back to this. I have to take us through another thing. So okay. you and I have both spent a lot of time on IRC throughout the years. I haven't really spent much time lately. Uh, but I, one of the things that I remember distinctly about IRC is countless people lurking in channels, ostensibly to help people with questions, and their only job was to correct other people, where they felt like that wasn't correct enough. Actually, you need to do this. Or actually, almost always, well, actually, or here's the thing, you know? There's, you can just always tell, you can hear it coming, even though it's text. You can just, oh no. The eye roll starts, everybody in the channels. That guy, again, is speaking up. Yeah. There's like this demand, we must be correct and accurate, and woe be unto you if both of you, if you and him, both think you're being the most accurate possible, but you disagree. That means the world is, one world is colliding with another, and there's about to be a cat fight of epic proportions. Like when someone is convinced they're right, and they're being challenged, Personally, I'm like, hmm, maybe we don't really have the same input or we have a different process and I want to figure out what's going on. Some people are just like, claws out immediately. So there's some, I've long puzzled over that behavior and I have to bring it back to like a gross lack of self-confidence or something because it's not just an, a demand for correctness. That's that's not enough to explain it. Because I, I could say, um, I have to drive down to Austin. When my actual destination, this is a very Texas thing, my actual destination is a suburb of Austin, but I'm going to say I'm driving to Austin. And if someone knew that I actually was going to Round Rock, they'd be like, well, actually, you're going to Round Rock. Okay, that's Austin. That's the Austin, greater Austin area. It doesn't really matter to everybody else who's not from Texas and doesn't care. Austin is good. 
mean, I say to people, I live in Dallas. That's not factual, but it's good enough because everybody knows what Dallas is. I mean, Dallas is known across the world because of that silly TV show in Walker, Texas Ranger. Those two. For that reason, people know Dallas. And it's kind of actually, fr- it's funny to run into that and people are like, oh, you're from Dallas. And I can see their eyes light up and they have this expectation of like, well, where's your cowboy hat? You know, or, or there's any number of fun I, things they ask about. I can confirm mm-hmm. Jeff does wear cowboy boots. I do. So he yes. does have that. He doesn't have the jacked up pickup yet. No, it's, I'm waiting for that to happen. Well, okay. So the warranty just uh, ran out on my truck. So it's about time. I think four inches is a good way to start. Uh, but, you know, tires, big tires are expensive. So I got to work out for that. But you'll see it in just a second. I'm going to, you know, jack up my truck 12 inches and go join the Redneck Navy. I believe is what they call themselves. But I think there's going back three, three jumps away back. There's just a, a driving Pop the stack. Yeah. We'll get back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Good analogy. There's a, a confidence thing, I think, that ends up in people that, that they, they must correct others. There must be, the situation must be correct and it must be exact. It doesn't always need to be that way. And especially when you're trying to do something creative, being exact often is not what you're seeking. You know, if you were always, I don't know much about photography, but if you were always able to nail the perfect aperture, the perfect focus, the perfect, I'll pick all these terms, then you may never discover that if you're slightly out of focus, you get this neat effect. Or if you always pick the right time of day to pick your pictures so you have enough light, you'll never discover that at twilight when dusk is changing the colors, you get a really cool purple on that mountain and you get some really neat stuff. You'll never discover that because you're only seeking the correctness. Or the people that are playing music straight off of a, a music sheet, you know? So photography is weird because it is both highly technical and highly artistic Mm -hmm. at the same time. And it's a weird blending when those two worlds collide Mm -hmm. and go hand in hand. Because there are so many times that you can have a technically accurate, perfect photo Mm -hmm. that just doesn't work artistically. Mm -hmm. And you can have a photo that is technically in the garbage, but yet artistically, it is amazing. Mm -hmm. There's a weird counterbalance between those two. It's a very similar thing that happens in uh, guitar and, and bass amps. The like iconic guitar amps that if you play guitar and you think of iconic guitar amps, they actually have flaws in some certain way. In fact, the, the most iconic ones, if you were to sit down and go to, go to school and go to engineering, uh, electrical engineering, and get out, and you would not design your circuit that way, you know? The reason this amp sounds funny is because it actually it's a little bit biased cold, and so that means... The waveform gets edited a certain way, and then that gets manipulated, and then it sounds that classic way, that very, you know, it sounds Marshall, or it sounds Mesa, or whatever. It's, it's the imperfections that actually make those amps desirable. But it can't be, like, gross imperfection, because then you get nothing but junk coming out. So it has to be mostly correct, but not all the way correct, such that there's something iconic that comes from, you know, your uniqueness. So... Uh, and I think that's true of a lot of creative endeavors and a lot of where these crossover or something that is technical, but also crosses into creativity. That I think that happens a lot. There, you have these people that are, that are going back, seeking this correctness. This is the correct way to design a, uh, an amplifier circuit. And, you know, it has a minimum number, a minimum percentage of THD. It's got the best frequency response across the entire spectrum. It's got X, Y, R, and Q. Well, when you go play your guitar through that, it sounds like junk. Sounds boring. Sounds lifeless. Because an actual guitar amp, what they're putting out is is peaked and flawed, and especially guitar amp speakers are especially notorious for coloring your sound. So I think uh, when a technical person crosses into a creative realm and they don't recognize that they need to let that go, they can come in and study how how do I you know how to photography. <laughs> like a better way to put it. And then they know better than everybody else. And when they see someone else doing a, oh, I saw that in photography for dummies, you're not supposed to do that. You know, I mean, it's not quite, I left my lens cap on, but it's, uh, cause I did do that one time. I got, I thought I got a everybody great does shot. That at least once. I got, I thought I got a great shot and I was like, oh crap, really? So, well, anyway, um, I think that there's something, if you combine the point I was making earlier about the gross lack of self-confidence with a you're used to a correctness working for you and seeking a correctness um, almost always results in a superior product, not always, in the technical world. The more correct you are, the more careful you are, the better your results are. The, tr- the same thing cannot be said of artistic things all the time. In fact, some of the best art is wild and crazy. Jackson Pollock, do you think there was a 
a method to his madness? There is if you study. Like there's there's patterns that you can pick out. But really, I mean, it's drips and dribbles and this and that. And it, it, to me, I, I can't see it. I'm, I don't have the skill to be able to discern it. But there's there's some arrogance in there that says, uh, I've studied, you haven't, therefore I know more than you. Or I've studied, I saw this before, or something. And I guess maybe that works in their technical field and it brings them success, so they think it'll bring them success in a creative field. Um, I, I there's patch something together from those responses. I, I think there's something there, but I also feel like there I'm not wrapping hands around something. There's something staring me in the face that I can't quite put my finger on that I don't understand. So, do you think it's more out of a desire to be technically correct, or like it, what I where I thought you were going when you initially said about self-image? It's a desire to appear smarter than one is. I think it's or it's both. All of it. I think okay. I would say the the people I'm thinking about in IRC, it's definitely the latter. You know, they're trying to come to cover over some perceive you know, a perception of imperfection by presenting this image of always knowing the answer. Of always and it's every time someone asks a question and there's a response, it's an opportunity to demonstrate just how smart you are. Some people just really need to feel like they're the smartest person in the room. I don't understand the drive, but they're, they're I guess they define their self-worth. I'm the smartest person here. That means I got to prove it to everybody else. They all have to know that I'm the smartest person here. And again, the clash when two people in the room both think that. Just kind of funny. It's funny to a point. It gets a little tiresome after a while. And a lot of those, well, actually, people, I just like, I put them on mute. Because they often, in IRC, they didn't have much else of value to share. They were waiting for someone to ask a question. And then pop up with the correct, more correct answer. Ideally, after someone else has already opened their mouth first, metaphorically, and revealed just how stupid they are. There's something there. For me, I think it's mostly explainable by they're trying to cover over perceived inadequacies. I think. But when you when you talked, you talked initially about taking into the creative realm, and we we also see this though when we're talking about other fields too. Like, I think in, in a previous episode, you had brought up Bill Gates and his uh, arrogance and how he was funding medical things and having expectations of a certain outcome because the, you just throw enough money at it and you, you expect an outcome and you tell them this is what I expect to see and they'll just make it happen. So I don't know if I would classify that as arrogance and for his case, more just the I'm super rich, I can make things happen. Okay. Which is not necessarily the, like, because I don't think I've ever heard Bill Gates talk about how he's a medical researcher. Mm -hmm. He's just the guy funding it all right. and sort of taking the credit because he's funding it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's not going about like he's a doctor. Now, I'm not going to say the man doesn't overspeak what he knows because I think he does. I think he does too. But I don't think that he is trying to play like he is a medical practitioner. Mm -hmm. I think he goes. He takes great pains to not appear that, but it still sometimes comes across to me like he knows more than medical professionals, because he'll say things, or uh, maybe not medical professionals, but he certainly was fronting like he he knew more than schools when he was going. We're going to make a better K through twelve school, and it's going to be based on programming and and high tech and and this. Look what we can do, and it'll be remote even. We can do all these really cool things. You don't know what you're doing. We do. Watch. We'll prove it. There was a whole lot of arrogance and hubris that went into that, and that. I didn't ever follow up on how that was going, but I think it's not going all that well. Because when the rover meets the road, there's a change. There's yeah. a challenge to education that I don't think he was expecting. And the fact that you know teachers don't normally work in that right. method. I mm -hmm. mean, they're learning now how to do remote, but a lot of teaching is actually working with students one-on-one. Mm -hmm. -on -one. Even when you're in a classroom, you can still work one-on-one -on -one because you yeah. learn the student and you can learn, you know, how they learn. So then you can adapt mm -hmm. your teaching style to that. Whereas you then take it them and put them in a virtual environment. Well, they've never been trained for that because that's yeah. not what they teach at, you know, when you're going for your degree in education. Right. Well, now every, every teacher is a veteran now. <laughs> After yeah, they're, they're, they're getting there. Mm -hmm. Yep. So. so this does, this does lead into another question, which we were asked. Oh, well, that's, that's. Cool. Which was, what are our thoughts on the technocracy? Ooh, that is a good question. And generally, if, if it's not obviously apparent 
by my sentiments said so far. I'm against it because I don't think tech people are the smartest people in the world and should be the ones deciding how everything in the world should run. I think domain professionals should be the ones in charge of separate fields because mm. obviously that's how that should work. <laughs> it does now, seem obvious. Yeah, that's not to say that tech cannot improve things. Like, for instance, technology has done amazing things in advancing and scaling up vertical farming, for example. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that have been able to be accomplished with vertical farming with a tech mindset is absolutely astonishing. And I wish we would actually start applying it more on a larger scale nationwide. Mm -hmm. uh, however, you know, in that situation and in this example, tech people didn't come in basically saying, farmers don't know how to grow shit. I know how to grow shit. <laughs> Listen to me. Like, <laughs> the, people, the people that have been pushing this came in, you know, learned from people in the field mm -hmm. and then said, okay, well, there might be a way we can do this one thing here better. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, let's try that. Oh, that worked out. Well, there might be something we can do a little better over here. And there might be something we can do a little bit. So it's incremental, small changes. That's not a scientific method approach. I wholeheartedly yeah, approve of that, you know? That then over time mm -hmm. arrives at a much better system. Mm -hmm. But that is not, I'm going to come into this field and change the way this field is done because I'm smarter and I can figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we've talked before about Instagram and how I don't like Instagram because you basically have people, developers, deciding through mm -hmm. the algorithm what photographs are successful and what photographs aren't, not actually on a artistic or technical level, but simply on a what is most likely to increase engagement, which is more likely to increase funding. Mm -hmm. And there's, without question, Instagram has influenced the way people take photographs. I mean... You could argue that it's beneficial because it's, you know, thrown a little chaos into the system. And yeah, yeah sometimes you need some maybe. things to be shaken up. Yeah, that's, but that's healthy. It's a very nature-oriented. Nature's it's, always it's, doing that. It's healthy, but there's a limit at which going beyond that is not healthy. Right. The scale at which they're doing it, too. Like, nature, um, nature doesn't often work at grand scales. It works at very small scales. I mean, hurricane is grand scale. Tornado, less grand, but still pretty big. But often you'll see like little, if you just go out in nature and spend some time, there's 10,000 storylines all occurring all around you on small scale. You know, this animal is trying to hunt that animal. You know, the plant's trying to grow where the sunlight is right now, but by the time it actually can move itself, the sunlight's moved or something. There's all these little things that are going on. But it's injecting this chaos and this challenge at small and large scales all over the place, you know? So I think that is healthy. But when you talk about what Instagram has done, they, they have consumed, I don't want to say they've completely taken over photography, but they have certainly influenced it much more than anyone would have originally anticipated. And I think most photographers are talking about Instagram as one of the places they publish. Maybe not the only place. I would place. say that, that Instagram has definitely affected popular photography. Okay. I, I don't think they have affected the industry okay. as much. That's... They have definitely affected the layman's view of it that's that i actually i'm i'm pleased to hear that because it would it would bother me very much if what's popular becomes the sole driving characteristic by which we make all decisions and well i mean okay so there's going to be a little of that anyway just because of the way society works mm -hmm. i mean you look at the 1980s and the portraits that were done in the 1980s we look at them now and we go oh god those are horrible why did why did we think they were good well because People saw them in the 80s and they're like, I want my portrait to look like that. So then the photographers are like, all right, you're paying me to do this. So I'll do this. This is what the people want. And that's how they made their money. Yep. So like there definitely are ways that, you know, trends can occur like that. Right. However, again, with with photography being a, a blend of of technical and artistic, it's been somewhat resilient to some of that by people coming in and, you know, trying to change the change the game, so to speak. Because at the end of the day, I mean, it's physics. It, it's optics. Like, you can't really revolutionize that. Yeah, there's not much. You've you got physical you limitations to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You can revolutionize the artistic side of it, but that usually comes and goes. It's, you know, there are some things that are just tried and true, mm -hmm. and those are, you know, what we generally term as the rules of photography right. or the guidelines. But... You know, you can break any of the rules if there's a good reason for doing it and there's an artistic merit to doing it in that case. Mm -hmm. So they aren't hard rules, again, the artistic side. But yeah, Instagram has definitely had an impact on the way just general people view 
photo photography and it has had an impact on the what people consider to be a good photograph yeah definitely that and that's that's kind of a concern for me that um let's just say that since it's loud and when when you the random person is going on the internet and they're seeing pictures of you know good pictures good photography odds are that's being defined by what people are voting for on Instagram, which is indirectly being defined by what the Instagram algorithm designers are promoting to get them the most impressions, the most the money, the most whatever, you know, the most dopamine hits to get people to come back over and over and over again, right? So that does leak out, and over time, it has a greater impact on people's expectations and perceptions. Something like music, I think, has a little more resilience against that. You can go ahead. Yeah, it one more thing on the Instagram thing, like, it definitely has an impact, but it is usually so hyper accelerated that thankfully it burns itself out fast enough. Uh, that's, that's good. Yeah. So instead of, you know, the, the latest thing sticking around for very long, mm-hmm. it'll be around for at most a couple months and then it's, oh, well, this is the new hotness, mm-hmm. yep. which thankfully allows there to be a level of consistency that professionals can stick with. Mm-hmm. Instead of just chasing the fad because the fad changes so often. Right. And I think you just break, break people down into two broad groups of are you chasing the fad or are you not? Maybe it's not fair. There's probably more subgroups than that or, you know, more equivalence classes. But people that are creative, that are trying to achieve something. You showed me that video of the guy who had the, the, the dream shot. And he was talking about, you know, how many things had to go right for him to get this dream shot and how he almost didn't get it. And it was like an epic journey. He went there four or five times, like randomly sometimes, not randomly, but it was, it was just, it, everything had to work perfectly for him to get the shot he wanted. And he did get it at the end. It was a great video and I really liked it. And I was mm-hmm. looking at the shot he took and I'm like, that's an amazing shot. I can't imagine spending two and a half years arranging my life around trying to get that one shot, but you know, I, that's not my thing. So. Right. I think that that maybe photography, I I was going to say that it's, that's more unique to photography, but I know of guitarists that spend their entire life trying to find the sound. They'll buy and sell gear at a ridiculous rate because they don't, maybe the unique combination of this amp and that guitar with this particular guitar cable that's eight feet long and was made by somebody else plugged into that particular pedal just so gets them that the sound and then that mm-hmm. sound is enough to drive everything else in their life and you know i've been i've guilty of that too chasing the sound on guitar and on bass i've largely found it on bass and when you find it it's like you're centered in exactly where you want to be but there are people that aren't looking for that they're looking for whether what does everybody else want what does everybody else think the sound is you know mm-hmm. so there's a in the last 10 maybe 15 years there's been a, a rise of very Highly technical progressive metal or gent, I think is what people call it sometimes. And it's like almost math rock and, and very polyrhythmic and very sometimes abrasive, sometimes incredibly beautiful, but it's, it's kind of a strange thing. But one of the things they did differently was they're not really tending to use, oh, go plug your guitar into an amp. They're using a full range frequency response amps in front of which they're placing a modeler. And the modeler is doing all the work for them, and they just want something that'll make it loud at the, you know without coloring the sound any more than what the modeler has already done. That's a different way to approach your guitar sound. It's you can do a whole lot with that. And there's there's a whole cottage industry of patches and impulse responses. Actually, this is a new term for me: impulse response. Kind of you can sample a speaker, and you can duplicate its effect on your sound as long as you have the impulse response patch. And so there's just like the whole, now people are swapping impulse responses. Like they recorded their speaker in a wet room or something and they capture all these things and they're trading and swapping. And there's now what seems like not quite an Instagram level frenzy, but what's the, what's the new patch? What's the new sound? I mean, they just, you know, uh, Porcupine Tree just put out a new album and then they have this sound and it's amazing. Although they're not really in this movement. Uh, and there's, there's actually a big following of people that are chasing these sounds because now you don't have to go out and spend $2,000 on your amp. You just got to make sure you have the modeling software. And then you download their patches and you do their setting and you can get the sound like them. And I don't care for that, frankly. Um, but I can't yeah, stop I've people from doing fan. that. 
Yeah, I've never been a fan of following the fads. Yeah, no. And I mean, obviously, every industry has fads. I mean, yes. to, to jump to a different industry that I, I touched on earlier, you know, the, the auto mechanic car industry. Mm -hmm. That is something that is like some of the fads in the auto industry. I just do not get like the whole stance thing with rims at an absolute rims and tires at an absolutely insane angle, just so you mm -hmm. can get your car lower to the ground. And like, you're actually, you're running on less than an inch of rubber because they're at such an oblique angle. Wow. Like, I don't, I do not get that whatsoever. Like, congratulations. You just made your car not drivable. They're impossible to go anywhere. Okay. But she looks or real just, good doing you know, it. As as somebody who, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, is fond of German cars, I find the whole import ricer auto body kit to scene to be absolutely just weird. Like, okay, Makes you happy. have a nice Civic. You've you've done some good work on it. What's with the airplane wing? Well, like it's you, a heck there's of a lot no cheaper to do that need, than something there's else. There's no way you need that much downforce no. on the back on the end back of the car. Of, yeah, it's a front-wheel right. drive car. What are you doing? You know? Well, you can still need downforce yeah, on a front-wheel drive car. But you don't car. need that level of downforce. But, right. That's an excessive level of downforce. And, you know... Yeah, so like there are definitely fads. And mm -hmm. what I personally love when I haven't done any car stuff in a while, as you and I have talked about before... But is like some of just the absolute insane engineering of what some people would do. Mm -hmm. And it's it kind of reminds me what to what you were talking about with the audio stuff, where it's like, I want to use this with this and this and this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they'll go through the, you know, figurative parts bin of, you know, with a Volkswagen and Audi of, OK, well, what blocks do I have available? What heads do I have available? Well, can I put these two together? And like they come up with absolute Frankenstein systems <laughs> that require <laughs> insane engineering, like. I've actually got a build that I'm most of the way through even so yeah this is this is me being crazy. So you know I've I've been I've been rebuilding uh my Corrado. Mm -hmm. Again. It's not done. It, it has a motor in it that I've built from ground up. <laughs> but I also have a replacement motor that I'm about 85% of the way that's going to replace the motor that's in it even though the car's not done yet. Wow. Um, okay. You took yeah. a detour? But, well, you no, know, it's just an engine that I've always wanted to build. Oh, well, that's a good reason. But like, so it takes uh, an engine or a head and a block from two completely different generations. Mm -hmm. And because the Germans like to do things and keep certain things as standards, mm -hmm. thankfully, the bolt pattern is the same. Nice. And the cylinders line up the same. Now, there are some things like you have to actually block off a couple of turn lines. Probably, you have yeah, to yeah, yeah. change a couple of the internal things. But like other people have gone absolutely insane. The, having to get actual custom parts machined <laughs> so that they can then put that part on that engine that's not supposed to go there mm -hmm. and it's just like okay that's 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 excessive it's amazing but that's that's kind of ridiculous modern manufacturing techniques allow that you know like yeah. i was watching a video the, the toyota super just came out last year and i was watching a video of some guys they were they were wanting to take the, the brand new toyota super which is actually a bmw by the way for those that don't know the brand new supra who doesn't have any aftermarket parts for because it it's all new and they did one of those things where you scan the inside of the uh, the engine bay and mm -hmm. get a 3D point map, basically everything. And then they were rebuilding, you know, the, the, the exhaust manifold and, and how can I cram bigger turbos in here? How can I move this around? And they were like quick fabbing these parts out of centered metal, uh, centered aluminum, actually, I think is what they were doing. And they were able to create these parts in practically no time at all, whereas before it would have taken lots and lots of iterations. And they were able to put out like a thousand horsepower Supra a month after the Supra was released, when there's mm -hmm. no custom parts for it. That was that would be right. unheard of in the past. You know, it used mm -hmm. to be you waited for a couple of years for the manufacturers to to pick the car apart enough and build parts kits. You try to use the parts you've already got as much as you can, maybe modify them some so that they fit. But there's not a lot of room underneath the hood of a, of a new Supra, so you got to be really careful what you put in there. And you'd wait a couple of years for things to be published, and then you'd point into a magazine and say, that, get me that. It'll be X amount of dollars. Okay, ship it here, you know? Mm -hmm. We're now progressed so far that we can do whatever we want. Almost. You could do like, like Mad Max is putting together two Cadillacs, stacking one body on top of another, welding them together, and then they made like a bubble in the middle, and it was actually like a cockpit kind of thing. They did some crazy stuff. I love that movie. Oh, that's the, mm -hmm. the most recent Fury Road. And there's some really good, like, awesome behind-the-scenes uh, videos of how they put the cars together. And they're all, like, legitimately 
massive V8s with 800 horsepower, and they literally, you know, welded two cars together, they cut it in half and widened it, or all these cool things. That's things, if you just want to go and have a good time sticking stuff together, what's possible? Do it. Have fun. But that's not what, trying to take it back a little bit where we were going from, that's not what the kind of person we're talking about is likely to do. Right. And the other thing to to bring up is that also, like the people who are doing that, who worked on, you know, Fury of Road and stuff like that, like those are domain professionals uh -huh. in the field of auto work mm -hmm. and design and engineering. And this is not some guy who writes JavaScript for his day job going, oh, well, I'm just going to build a new car by myself. Like, no, like that's that's not how that works. Nope, that's not how it works. Prepare to pull out your checkbook if that's what you think it works. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why to actually I like those in. people because they go and they pull out their checkbook and they buy all these fancy right. tools yeah. and that works and fund I... fund the domain professional to do the work mm -hmm. just yeah yeah but to, to tie it back to the other thing that we we were touching on was the technocracy this is one of the reasons I don't like it is because just because you're highly skilled in the field of technology does not mean that you are going to be highly skilled mm -hmm. at doing something else I mean I know a lot of people like to point to Elon Musk and go, oh, well, look at all the things he's done. And it's like, no, no, no. Elon Musk has hired professionals in the field to do the work. Like, Elon Musk is not a rocket scientist. He hired all the rocket uh -huh. scientists to mm -hmm. do the work. Now, he's a brilliant man, so he can understand things. And, you know, I'm sure he's gotten, he knows way more now than he did then. Uh -huh. But the fact is, he didn't step in of, I am going to design the rocket. He went, I want a rocket company. Who are the people that know how to build a rocket? <laughs> oh, it's those guys. I want to do this. Let me go get them. Mm -hmm. Right. Just how much is this going to cost me? Okay, I better start another right. company first, and then I'll start that one. Yeah, so, like, again, you know, he kind of does in that way what I was saying I think Gates was doing with the medical stuff, mm -hmm. where he is funding it, but he is not doing it himself. Okay. You know, I don't have a problem with tech people taking their money and helping drive industries forward. I'm cool with that. I'm against people in the tech field thinking that they are better at running the rest of the world mm -hmm. than the rest of the world. Oh, we're going to hack photography. No, you're not. No, you're not. And, and it, it doesn't even go beyond that. But I mean, it reaches all the way into the public policy space mm -hmm. where you have people who are like, oh, well, I think things should be done this way politically, or I think this is how society should run. So, you know, this is mm -hmm. what we're going to do. I mean, Google, I think they finally stopped one of their, they're doing their smart city because it just was not going over well <laughs> um or it was not well received and people were like uh, you know this may be your utopian idea but it's a of surveillance this, nightmare kind of thing but yeah we're we're not down with this we're not cool with this mm -hmm. take your idea and shove it mm -hmm. I, I approve there's there's an aspect of technocracy that i find appealing but i don't think will work um my understanding of technocracy also includes uh, like a applying the scientific method to social challenges or economic challenges we have long lines at the DMV. What can we be doing? Let's let's hypothesize if I make this change or that change, then we can improve their existence. Okay, maybe on that scale it might work. But on you know, 300 million people in the United States, plus however many other transient people that have come in for a little while, or people that didn't bother to get documented, however many there are, can't really do the scientific method at that scale. I think you can't. And there's an aspect of technocracy that says, well, we don't have to be good at governance as long as we stick to this method that works elsewhere. You know, as long as we stick to scientific method, we'll end up with at least a better result than we started, ideally. And that sounds appealing to me, but it doesn't work. As far as I can tell, it doesn't work at that scale. And people that think it's going to work, uh, usually the rubber meets the road and it grinds their face off. It does not work well, well at all. Right. It doesn't work because their sample size of you know, I don't know if you want to call it research or testing or whatever, but the sample size that their ideas come from is small. Mm -hmm. I mean, this this goes into the urban versus rural issue. You have people that are making policy decisions for urban areas and then applying those to the rural areas because, well, it works here in the city, so it should work in the... Well, it doesn't, like the whole COVID response thing. Right. You know, Maryland applied certain standards for Baltimore, and I understand why they did it for Baltimore. It made sense for Baltimore. It does not make sense where I live. Mm -hmm. And it actually had the exact opposite impact of what they would want it to have mm -hmm. because life 
in the rural areas is not like rife in the urban area. Mm -hmm. And if you are trying to come up with the new way to do things, you need, you're, you're, first off, you're not going to ever find one thing that'll solve every, yes, there's, cover there's every, every situation. But more often than not, the people who are making or trying to make those decisions are, they only know one perspective. Mm -hmm. So they might be able to come up with a solution that works in some cases, but they have no idea how that proposed solution is going to affect other situations because they don't have any experience or knowledge in it. Right. And that's where the domain professionals do. And to, to have the arrogance to say, I don't need a domain professional, you're just going to make all the mistakes that the domain professional has already seen and perhaps made himself or herself. And you're just going to make the same dumb mistakes that were avoidable because you decided you knew better than them. Now, I'm okay with that on like someone starts a company. But I'm not okay with that with someone doing that in my government because when they make a mistake, it affects all of us. Like you're saying with Maryland, mm -hmm. we had a similar problem in yeah. Texas. A lot of the very public changes that were were broadcast. Um, actually, at first, Texas was hesitant to do lockdowns because 90% of Texas is extremely rural, and they just people just kind of tend to keep their distance anyway because that's everybody's got space, everybody's got land. I don't need to be up next to you because I've got three acres between you and I. You know, right? I'll just yell at you across the fence. Hey, neighbor. You know, that's Texas. We're we're friendly, but we uh, we keep our distance and we all have guns. So <laughs> don't get too close, because then we might think you're trespassing and take a shot at you. That kind of thing. And I am partially joking, but partially not. It is inspired kind of by what I've experienced or you know what I've talked to people about. But that's the rural part of Texas. And the outsized amount of news coming out in March and April last year was about the urban areas. Of Texas, which were under assault, not at first, but they quickly started. Texas is one of the hotbeds of Houston and Dallas, were two of the hotbeds. And I don't think that's specifically because we were doing anything wrong. We were just kind of late to clamping down on things because we were thinking, oh, people will have their space here. Everybody's got their own castle. There's the density is not as high in Texas, even in urban areas, as it is in other places. Everybody in Texas, I like to joke that everybody has their own castle. That's, it's kind of true. So you just go back to your own castle and hang out there. You don't you don't go out unless you need to, and everything's good. Well, that advice didn't really work, and it ended up with the major clusters of COVID springing up everywhere. And we had to overcompensate, at least at first, to kind of get out in front of that. And there's still like this a strong element of people running through Texas that don't want to wear a mask, that don't want to agree to any of these conditions, that are just like doing life like normal, because. You're thinking like an urbanite, and we're out here in the middle of nowhere. My my city, quote-unquote, is actually a post office, and it's got 400 people that are all within 12 miles of that post office, and that's the city. So, no, we don't need you. We we can take care of ourselves and kind of stay in We're self-sufficient. Go pound sand. So, I guess, I guess what it boils down to is... No one solution works for everybody, and the larger the scale, especially at the governance scale, you're not going to be able to get it right. There has to be some degree of compromise. You can't just rely on something like a scientific method or a, a, a market theory. And there's, there's actually quite a lot that happens at the national level uh, that is simple monetary market theory, and it actually tends to work decently, because I think the, the economy is something that you can do better on when you have a, a the scientific approach to it. I don't think you could do that to social issues. I just, I, there's always going to be someone with something that sticks out, doesn't fit, and it kind of wrecks the model, or there's going to be some, you can't treat everybody the same. You just can't. But you can treat dollars the same. So maybe it's not um, technocracy. What would you, what would you call the term of applying technocracy, but to the economy? What would that be called? I'm sure that's already a thing. Meritocracy? Maybe. Well, I mean, meritocracy is just the best people with the best ideas rise to the top. That's not what happens in the economy at all, <laughs> well, <laughs> unfortunately. No. Whereas, you know, every time I've ever heard anyone talking about technocracy, it's always been termed as people and industries in the technology field mm -hmm. trying to run everything because they're uh, smart to bring it back to yeah. the beginning there's this huge problem with arrogance and that we know better than everyone else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that there's, um, I don't know if there's any solving that. I think the people that are like that, they're convinced that's the right way. You know, the ones that I've run into, I don't really like to spend time with the, well, actually folks, because they, they very quickly get on my nerves. 
But uh, I don't know that there's any solving. There's, I don't know how they fall into it. Maybe it's a situational. There's no, it's multipath. There's no way to say, oh, this one thing is, uh, if you experience this, then you will end up that way. I'm not trying to claim that. But usually for all these different conditions, there's one or a couple of remedies. And it seems like there's not really a good remedy for these folk. Because they're convinced. Of, what happens is if you do manage to get them to chill out, they'll just leave that hobby and find the next one, do the exact same thing. That's what I've observed. They'll just bounce from thing to thing feasting on the newness of it and the reveling in telling other, other people what they're doing wrong. I, I, that's what I've observed. Now, that's not universal and that's not always true. But um, I don't know that you can really curtail it. So for those that have lean this way and do that, um, maybe send us some feedback and I'd like to hear from you guys. And certainly I'm sure other people have anecdotes of, well, I play guitar and we had a guitar club and this guy came in and told us we were all playing wrong or something. Yeah, I'm sure there's those, and share that with us too. We want to hear all those things, and, and maybe there's something we're missing here, or something we can collectively work on. Maybe it's a societal change that would help to reduce the incidences of that. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a, being on Twitter helps sharpen that or something. I don't know. Maybe the, the, the fast response, the short soundbite way we live now is contributing to it. There's, there's something. There's got to be something. Because it would really be beneficial if we could just kind of nip that in the bud. Because I'm, I'm getting kind of tired of these folks. I'll be honest. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, you know, I, I just think it's not technically solvable, but maybe our listeners have other ideas. So send us yeah. in your feedback. I'd love to hear what you guys had to say about it. And uh, we didn't really cover technocracy heavily, but I think we we did answer the, the question, like, what's our stance on technocracy? Or what's our... Yeah, and, and I'll be interested to see what, what our listeners say. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe they'll, they'll throw us a bone back that has some good meat on it that we can... Uh, oh take to task and, and dig into. I love that. So. Those are my favorite episodes. So, yeah. So, and, and we will be doing on that very topic. The, the next episode we're going to do is going to be a feedback episode Yay. where we cover a whole bunch of feedback that we've gotten. So I love those. Tune in next week for that. And uh, yeah, so links will be in the description uh, for how to reach out to us on telegram and on matrix um, as well. You can email me. There is a link on the website. So yeah, let us know. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. We'd love to hear what you think. Thanks for listening, guys and gals. 